Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, October 20th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, a new potential way for federal scientists to get some guidance in their careers. Plus, with the ongoing changes to reproductive care laws in the country, how is Veterans Affairs navigating the waters? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Social Security Administration says it overpaid about 2 million beneficiaries over the past two years. The agency's top leader says that's a small fraction of its overall payments. But SSA says part of the problem is that the agency has its smallest workforce in decades. Meanwhile, it's providing benefits for a record number of Americans each year. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more for us. Jory, how are we today? Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for context, how do these overpayments fit in overall with how much SSA pays and benefits every year? Yeah, some important context here, Eric. SSA says that these overpayments, these two million overpayments over two years, that they are a small fraction of what the agency pays out overall. They have been paying out benefits these days to a record 71 million Americans. And the overpayments account for about half of 1% for Social Security payments and about 8% of supplemental security income payments for those individuals who are getting SSA payments uh, through the disability side of the agency. And so we heard from acting SSA Commissioner Kalolo Kijikazi. She told members of the House Ways and Means Committee that this, again, is just a small fraction of what SSA is paying out and that these overpayments, while unfortunate, are a drop in the bucket, so to speak. SSA's employees work assiduously to pay the right person the right amount at the right time. And as a result, we have achieved low overpayment rates. And that is Acting SSA Commissioner Kalolo Kishikazi. All right. So what is SSA going to do to recoup those overpayments? Are they going to start sending notices out to folks who got too much money? Yeah, well, unfortunately for them, that is the case. SSA has begun mailing out these notices to these beneficiaries that SSA believes have been overpaid. And in that mailing, they are requesting a full and immediate refund. And to recoup these funds, SSA is telling beneficiaries that it's proposing withholding a percentage of future benefit payments uh, until they have settled that overpayment. Now, of course, beneficiaries have the option to appeal that decision if they think that, in fact, they have not been overpaid or to propose a different rate of withholding from what SSA has proposed. And Kijikazi recognizes that this may put some beneficiaries in a bind, uh, that they may not have the means to immediately pay those overpayments back. But she says that SSA is required by law to try and recover these overpayments. I understand that receiving an overpayment notice can be distressing for beneficiaries. We seek to balance compassion with our statutory obligation to seek recovery and carefully review Social Security trust funds. And she can say that again. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. All right. So what is the state of the SSA workforce? Uh, if they have that small workforce, how is that factoring into their effort to recoup some of these payments? It definitely factors into things. Kijikazi told lawmakers that the staffing shortage absolutely contributes to these overpayments that we're talking about. 
given the record number of beneficiaries that SSA now serves. SSA has tried to do something about this staffing shortage. SSA last year hired about 7,800 employees, but once you factor in retirements and people leaving the agency, the agency only really felt a headcount growth of 3,200 employees. So overall, SSA has a workforce of about nearly 60,000 employees overall. But despite those best efforts here, the agency now has to put a hiring freeze on additional hires in overtime as it's now in fiscal 2024 and it's under a continuing resolution. So uh, it doesn't quite know what its budget resources are going to be long-term. And so they've had to put that pause on workforce growth for the short term. And here's Kijikazi on that. Given attrition over the course of the year, if we have level funding, we will have a hiring freeze, which means we cannot replace the people who leave. And so we will begin that decline in our staffing once again. All right. So what about that funding for the agency in fiscal 2024? Is it going to remain flat or are they going to be operating on a percentage like a lot of agencies have to in a CR? Well, it remains a little uncertain at this point because the House and the Senate remain pretty far apart on what uh, overall spending deal for the rest of this fiscal year would look like. The Senate has, by and large, agreed to the debt ceiling negotiations from earlier this year, which would kind of feel like a CR for the rest of the fiscal year and would cap non-defense discretionary spending, of which SSA would be part of that. But the House lawmakers, they've considered cuts to SSA funding as severe as 30%. Kijikazi says neither of those are great options. They want budget growth, not a flat budget. But she did tell lawmakers that a 30% cut, something of that magnitude, would force the agency to make some pretty tough choices. But if we receive a cut of that magnitude, what would happen is that many of the offices in your districts would have to close. We would not have the staff to be able to operate those offices or the funds available to pay for the rent for those offices. And that is SSA Acting Commissioner Kalolo Kijikazi. All right. So what more could SSA be doing to stop these improper payments? Because this can't be a fun process for them either. No, no. And it's obviously a situation where it's tough for SSA to walk up to Congress hat in hand and ask for more money when it is dealing with this kind of problem of this scale. Of course, there are some self-help things that SSA can be doing on its own here. Congress about eight years ago gave SSA new authority to enter into information exchanges with payroll data providers, uh, because at this point, SSA on the disability side of things for its benefits there, it relies on beneficiaries to self-report their earnings. And there's a certain income threshold for individuals with disabilities to receive SSI payments and other payments of that nature. At this point, SSA has not made use of that authority. It's not in place. It's not in a place where it can get that data from third-party providers to make sure that the payments that they're issuing, they're going to people who are eligible. Kijikazi says that there is some work in progress there, that SSA is finalizing a notice of proposed rulemaking, and that should be done by the end of this calendar year. So optimistically, what we could see is early next year in calendar year 2024, SSA begin to put this authority to good use. 
There's a lot of uncertainty in Congress right now, but any update on how much longer this will fall on Kijikazi and if former Maryland governor and presidential candidate Martin O'Malley will be confirmed anytime soon? That's a great question, Eric. It's at this point pretty unclear because we have yet to see O'Malley receive a confirmation hearing. He is, in fact, President Joe Biden's uh, pick to permanently lead SSA. Uh, Kijikazi has been holding down the fort for some time now. So really uncertain whether we'll see that permanent leadership uh, step in anytime soon. He's got his work cut out for him. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thank you so much for as always. Thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Jory's reporting on this and other topics at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, with the ongoing changes to reproductive care laws in the country, how is Veterans Affairs navigating the waters? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Ever since last year's ruling from the Supreme Court, which paved the way for states to ban abortion, confusion among the medical community in certain states is at an all-time high regarding the treatments they're able to provide. The same goes for those working for the Veterans Health Administration. To get a sense on how VA facilities are handling the ongoing changes, the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General recently conducted a review of its reproductive care for female veterans. I got the chance to speak with Julie Kroviak, Principal Deputy Assistant Inspector General for the Office of Healthcare Inspections at VAOIG, about what the review found. So VA has made it an initiative to provide some more care for female veterans, certainly more than they have in the past. And there are more female veterans than ever before. But this also, I believe, branches out into other areas. Let's just start from the beginning and tell me you know, how this audit was initiated and what you all were looking for. So let me just stop. It really wasn't an audit. So within the Office of Healthcare Inspections, we do inspections or reviews. And I only, you know, I don't play semantics with that. I just want to say up front, this was intended to be a descriptive review. So there isn't really any validation of the data that was provided to us. So when facility leaders might have thrown numbers out or service lines, we didn't go and check it. We really wanted to talk about their perceptions of what barriers exist to providing a wide variety of reproductive health care services to veterans. So we really weren't locking it into women. And there are a couple of places where that becomes more apparent in the report itself. We have a women's health group within OIG that these are you know, dedicated professionals who look at allegations specific to care for women veterans, national topics, you know, things that are on the healthcare horizon that are really relevant to women veterans. And we listen to, you know, VSOs, we have roundtables, we try to get information on what's really, really important to women veterans. We try to conduct projects on that. So prior to even the IFR and you know, the decision in 2022 to limit access for uh, abortions, we were planning work to look at reproductive health care across the system. Just didn't know quite what angle we were going to use. But with women being the fastest growing demographic in the VA, it started to make sense that this was the right time to look at this across the system. All right. And so what was your methodology for taking a snapshot of access to VHA's reproductive care? It's a great question because typically when we look at things on a national landscape, we try to sample a random sample so that, you know, we can put out conclusions and even then which would prompt recommendations that would suggest we could aggregate that data and apply it across the system. But we didn't play that way for very specific reasons. 
we wanted to a capture a mix of sizes and complexities of facilities. So we wanted to include facilities that offer level one trauma services, but also have much more restricted options, you know, availability of resources. We wanted to hit urban and rural centers. And then with the issue with abortion, we wanted to touch a variety of systems across the country that were either going to be likely stable in their ability at a state level to provide abortion services. We're in the middle of the road of that decision, you know, as we understood it, and we're likely going to increase their restrictions on those services. So that was our sample. That was our approach to making sure we had a a good non-randomized sample to really tell a story. And we did that through interviews mostly. So we went, ultimately chose 26 facilities across the country. And we also wanted to make sure that we included every VISN. So VISNs are those Veterans Integrated Service Networks. Those are the regional collections of hospitals. So we wanted to make sure we hit at least one facility in each VISN as well. To describe what we did, we went in, we did interviews. We looked at facility, we talked to facility leaderships, the director, chief of staff. We wanted to make sure we got the women's health medical directors, the chiefs of primary care, where a lot of these provisions are managed. And then, of course, chiefs of urology. So urology services played a big role in this review as well. So you had your sample size and your methodology for finding out what were some of the reproductive care services or the state of reproductive care services that you all saw? What were the, um, I guess, results of those interviews? Pretty much what you would expect for any type of facility, regardless of complexity. Most of the facilities had limited issues with taking care of the contraception needs and preconception care. Sexual dysfunction, they typically were very comfortable and well-suited to provide those services. Maternity care, well-served. And I don't mean that they provide it, but there's a process in place that when a woman veteran is pregnant, that they have the processes in place to refer them out to get to the care they need. And then just genuine pelvic urinary health, certainly management of menopause. When I talk about those 600,000 women, half of them are childbearing age. The other half are not. So menopause is, you know, something that facility providers have to be well-versed on in managing. And then throw on now with the IFR, the pregnancy options, including not only the procedures, but the counseling for those procedures. So we wanted to talk about all of those with all of these leaders to understand where there were barriers and where there were not. And that's basically what we did. All right. And I know that the IG did not issue any recommendations on this topic for a myriad of reasons. But what were some of the challenges that you heard from the interviews that you conducted? Were there some people who felt that they were not hearing from leadership maybe on what they were allowed to do or things of that nature? That's basically the gist of it. So for the things that we consider routine reproductive health, the barriers were what you would see in other facilities for other healthcare services. Mm. So you're in a rural area, yeah, it can be really tough to find a gynecologist, but that's because of the area. There's shortages of providers at a facility. There might be shortages of providers in that area. But when the conversations got really sticky, and I don't mean sticky politically, but when they described where they're finding barriers, it's out of confusion and it's out of concern for their providers who are would potentially be meeting patients who were in need and met requirements for abortion services, counseling and the procedures, medical or procedure itself. 
And so when they did run into those barriers and, you know, they had a patient that in their medical opinion is in need of abortion services, you know, and they are not necessarily in an area that they can provide them. Do they have a standard practice for handling that or is that where the confusion? Yeah. So no, there was no standard. It's evolving. So and again, so we were doing these interviews in March. So that's six months after the IFR. So at that point, we still found leaders who mostly explain to us the concerns their providers brought forward, depending on the state they were licensed in, because VA providers don't have to be licensed in the state they practice, and depending on the state they're practicing in, and depending on the availability of resources. So what we saw facilities who were already tested in this space, they were usually either able to do it at their own facility, able to refer within the vision, or accessing community care if they had to use a facility or resource that had to be over state lines for a wide variety of reasons that were influenced by the recent Dobbs decision. And so it sounds as if a lot of the issues that they had are the same issues that you hear from just doctors in that same area. So it seems like it's just they're a symptom of a geographic crisis that the medical care community in, in general is facing down in those areas. Yeah. And basically, you know, it gets confusing because we have this IFR. So these providers, you know, have some guise of protection, but it really hasn't been tested yet. So the fear and the frustration of the unknown and the lack of guidance, the lack of training, it seems to be a real presence within these VA facilities for the providers who feel they might be put on the line to be part of a test. So while there are, quote unquote, guaranteed protections, it would still have to be tested. And that can be a painful process for a provider. We're talking about, am I going to go to jail for performing a procedure? But also, is this going to be reported to a state licensing board? Like, what are the implications? And no one's giving really concrete guidance to these people or to the leaders who they're looking to to get that guidance. So let's bring the focus to leadership. Did the VA have any response or did they mention how they're yeah. going? So no response from VA. Did they, you know, how do you think that they'll be using these results? And or is this just a review for your all's purposes? It wasn't for our purposes. We very rarely do work that just suits us. It was really meant to inform stakeholders that there are significant concerns we have with confusion across the system. You know, you would think, well, why didn't you put the recommendation? And, and you're right, there's a ton of reasons we didn't, but it's still an evolving issue. It was just meant to remind or inform leaders that you've got providers out there who are really in need of guidance and their local leaders don't have the information enough to provide it to them. So we've got to get this together to make sure that A, veterans are getting the care they need and providers are protected while doing it, or at least understand what the protections are. We did give this to VHA to review and they were welcomed to comment on it. They chose not to. I wouldn't weigh too deeply into that because when we have exchanges with VHA and our drafts, it really is to respond to recommendations to lay out action plans. So I think our sharing the draft was just to make sure that they didn't find anything erroneous in our description, which they really couldn't because it's a perceptions thing. But I don't want to lay it out that VA was unresponsive or dismissive of this work. Julie Kroviak is Principal Deputy Assistant Inspector General for the Office of Healthcare Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come on Federal News Network, the Air Force is applying the Tom Brady effect to hiring cyber workers. But first, a new potential way for federal scientists to get some guidance in their careers. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Federal Lab Consortium is looking to see if there's any interest in a mentorship program for federal technology transfer professionals. It recently wrapped up a survey of FLC members to gauge the viability of such a program. To hear about how the survey went and what a program like this would look like, I spoke to Whitney Hastings, who is chair of the FLC, as well as a senior technology transfer professional with the National Cancer Institute, along with David Kiston, vice chair of the FLC and also manager of technology and economic development at the Sandia National Laboratories. So we're always trying to find different ways to increase engagement amongst all of our labs because we've got big labs, small labs, and labs with different missions and priorities, but we can all learn from each other. And so one of the things we did at one of our earlier um, executive board meetings was came up with the BHAGs or the big, hairy, audacious goals. Like, what do we want to do to, like, get our members excited about the FLC? Uh, One of the things that constantly polls highly amongst our members is networking, you know, sharing best practices and learning from others. So a mentorship program was like a natural progression from our traditional training and education, Um, trying to do that one-on-one career development type of pathways. All right. And when you say career development, what is that, you know, is that just kind of advice for the average lab worker or is or tech worker? Or is there another thing that comes into mind when you all you know, first thought of this? Well, for me, it was I was thinking about myself as the mid-level tech transfer professional. Like I wanted to grow and learn about how other labs did things. How can I take my career profession to the next step? So a great way to do that is talking to my peers. I don't know. What do you think, David? Yeah, there's say, yeah, there's one of your peers right there. What do you? That's right. <laughs> there's so much variation across all the federal labs, even within agencies, and there's best practices at at each place. And so, you know, I think just to be able to tap into that expertise and and all of that knowledge is a huge opportunity for us and for all of our members. All right. You put out this survey and you already talked a little bit about this, Whitney. Um, and maybe, David, you can follow up on what who are the kinds of folks that you are looking to get involved in this, whether as a mentor or a mentee? So we are hoping that folks across the spectrum of tech transfer will sign up for this. What we found and it was really great was, you know, at all of these organizations, if it's a huge tech transfer office, if it's a group of one or two there are areas where people are experts and where they need help. So a mentor on one project can be a mentee on another, right? And we're really hoping just to get the benefit from that entire spectrum. So from that survey, what was the interest that you all saw? What were some of the results? And can you just kind of lay out to me how the survey, you know, what kind of questions did you all ask? Yeah, so it was really simple. The The focus is really what do you need and, and what do you have, right? And some of the areas that we're looking at are agreements. Uh, so we do a lot of work for external external industry partners, uh, writing licenses, cooperative research agreements, and you know everything else that supports this kind of core tech transfer work. Yeah, and I'll add to that that you know some of our agencies are stronger in one area and weaker in another. 
So for me, I'm at NIH and we were a little slow to get started on like the open source software, this, or at least the software aspect, because we do mostly biological materials, pharmaceutical drugs, things like that. Whereas if you look at your partners over at NSA and NASA, they're experts. So why reinvent the wheel when you can glean on your, your colleagues? Like, hey, how did you do that? Like, what are your, you know, what makes it easy over there? How can I use your stuff? Yeah, we're all on the same team, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> David, can I pick your brain on some examples of when, you know, you've kind of uh, leaned on partners in the same similar fields on and, and worked on projects with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is uh, this is a program, I think, that that can really leverage the strengths that we see across different ecosystems. Also, I work at Sandia National Laboratories. We're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how we can increase industry partnerships. And so looking to partner with labs that are maybe outside of the Department of Energy ecosystem, but also just in areas where there's a lot more commercial interaction. So for us, working with folks from NIH and from, you know, other other groups that are really forward-facing is, is a huge, huge leg up. Yeah, and more specifically, did and this is a question for both of you, you know, you already so, sort of gave me an example of how you've worked with people, but did you have like one mentor or one wise old person that you looked to whenever you were kind of stuck in a rut? <laughs> you know, I think there's, there's a tendency sometimes in federal government, and hopefully this isn't a shock to anyone, to get siloed and to get, you know, really stuck in the day-to-day. And so, you know, I, I've been really lucky to have some great mentors, but it takes a lot of time. And, and you know, if you are fortunate to find someone that can help you and guide you through this process, it's great. Tech transfer is relatively new. So I think what we're hoping to do is just cut the time that it takes for people to find those right resources. And Whitney, what about you? You know, one of my favorite things about tech transfer is that the community is so collaborative. They always want to share their best practices with you. So it's almost like, um, it's just amazing how my colleagues like David and all the others have just been willing to, to do webinars, to talk to me one-on-one afterwards. Um, there are too many to count. <laughs> and, you know, specifically in the tech transfer field, how would a mentor-mentee relationship necessarily work for you all? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, everything from uh, working through how to set up agreements, right, and looking at best practices um, on licensing, you know, it's it's a really technical space. And there's a lot of nuance that, you know, we can we can find some commonalities that, that affect everybody regardless of your agency. But within the agencies, there's also a lot of a lot of rules and regulations that affect how we do our jobs. And so we can we can sort of find the shortcuts and help each other just get through I think a lot of that steep learning curve. I think it can aid in career progression too, because maybe I'm a expert in creatives and I've done tons of creatives, but I want to move into the the licensing realm or I want to be a supervisor or and lead a tech transfer office one day. How do I get the skills necessary to make those next steps? All right. And so can you what can you tell me about the next steps in this program itself? This was just the very beginning stages, it seems like. Uh, What do you all have in store? And, you know, garnering from that interest that you saw, um, how is this all going to work out for you? Well, I think to start with, you know, we've collected some initial survey data. uh, So we need to kind of go through that um, and see what are the needs of our member community. 
Um, and how can we structure a program such that we've got enough mentees and mentors and can coalesce it around the topic areas of interest. So right now we're in data gathering mode, um, starting the pilot program and see if we can make a couple of matches and see how things go. Yeah. And you know, on that, having too many mentors and not enough mentees factor, is there a lot of, I, I guess my question is, you know, how youthful is the federal tech transfer uh, industry itself? Uh, do you think that there is a need for some of the newer folks coming in to have these mentorships? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, and again, this is a, it's a pretty nascent area. And so a lot of the people that I think Whitney and I have the benefit of, of learning from were really here at the beginning, right? So they wrote the first agreements, right? And they, they worked on the first commercial licenses for a lot of these organizations. And so now as we're kind of moving into a next generation, we're seeing folks that are retiring and, and you know, maybe moving out of the federal space. It's just such a, it's such a big opportunity as we're kind of at this inflection point to make sure that as we're trying to transfer the technology, we're also transferring a lot of the knowledge that goes into how that's done. In general, FLC is a, you know, this is a big resource for companies, for folks in the federal space, and to reach out, right, if there's questions about this or if people want to get more involved. Yeah, that and just um, we're trying to uh, meet our members where they are. You know, and in some cases, that's through our online education program. In other cases, it's through our national meeting. Um, and then in some cases, people want that one-to-one, and that's where we're implementing this mentorship program. Whitney Hastings is chair of the Federal Lab Consortium, and David Kiston is vice chair. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive when you want by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, the Air Force is applying the Tom Brady effect to hiring cyber workers. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. When it comes to hiring the next generation of cyber workers, the Air Force is not relying on typical prerequisites as measures of success. No doubt cyber certifications and training are important, but the service is also analyzing candidates at a whole other level. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Wompat is a member of the Air National Guard's Cyber Operations Group. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about how the Cyber Decision Cognitive Assessment and Readiness System, or SIDE-CARS program, is expanding the pool of cyber workers. Cyber training is very hard to get through the cyber training pipeline. But as, t- as taxpayers, we pay a lot of money for individuals to go through this training. So, but this training is a pass or fail. So if you fail, you come to my unit, you're in my unit, uh, and many units like this, and you fail, I still own you. I can't just get rid of you like an like a industry company can. Right? I can't just fire you. I, you're still mine. I'm still responsible for you, but I can't put you on mission. Well, if I can't put you on mission, then you're holding a seat from somebody that I need to put on mission. There's all these dependencies and, and things. So how do I find those people? And so with the cyber training, is, like I said, it's very hard. And so when we start to look at how do we find those people, when we stood this program up, I was talking to the, the people that are helping us doing this, and, he, and I'm taking the term that they use it's called the Tom Brady effect. And so when you look at Tom Brady, by objective measures, when he was going, you know, came into the NFL draft, he was not a phenomenal athlete. And I didn't recognize, I didn't know any of this until I started, I was on the sexual program and they pulled their, his stats and he was picked sixth in the NFL draft, sixth round, not six, but sixth round. 
And if you look at his numbers, he is average or below average for very for most of his statistics. But if you look at Tom Brady, like he is one of the most phenomenal athletes that's ever graced football, right? And so there are people out there, everybody's going after the Patrick Mahomes, the LeBron James, everybody's going after those. And there's only a handful of those people. And everybody's going after them. I mean, as a commander, I was going after those people. But there are a lot more Tom Brady's out there. How do we go find them that can be successful? So now I'm going to pull it out of the sports now realm and bring it to the cyber side. So when I became commander, we were standing down part of the flying unit on my base. And uh, this maintenance group who, you know, they're responsible for the maintaining of the aircraft. That unit was standing down. We were standing up as a cyber group. And the, the maintainers had to go find, they, they only had a few choices. And one of those choices was, hey, you can, you can go retrain to cyber. And I remember sitting in on one of the rooms when they were talking about it. And one of the people in the room was like, well, hey, what is cyber? And the gentleman up front was like, I don't know. It has to do with computers. And if you just go check it out if you're interested. So many of them actually came over to the, uh, to the cyber group. And what is interesting is that, uh, and I'm, I use three specific examples here, um, three individuals, one, uh, one they came into, some went to different types of mission sets, but they all came in and they, again, these three specifically had no cyber background, zero cyber training, aside from video games they were playing, like zero. And I confirmed talking with them, but we put them in the cyber pipeline, the training pipeline, they go through it. And not only are they, do they smoke the training, but they're the distinguished graduate of their class with no cyber background. So how is that? And, and there's got to be more people out there like that than there are of me trying to figure out these rock stars, right? So, so how do I find these individuals? That's how this really came about was trying to figure out, I had a gap where I had to recruit people. How do I find the people that I need to put on these high-performing teams and get make sure they can be successful? So we, we, I like to think through how, you know, when it comes to, to this, what it looks like for you know, driving a car, like, Anybody can drive a car, but most people know how to drive a car, right? Anyone can drive a car, but there's a certain level of people that know how to race. And it's because they have a certain level of intelligence. They know when they go into the turn, when to speed up, when to slow down, and they can persevere to come from behind. But that is kind of the, the analogy I like to use because Brady used his skills as a quarterback, obviously, right? He was in the NFL draft. He was a quarterback at his, at his college, but his traits, those, those things I mentioned earlier, methodical thinking, attention, detail, those types of things helped him learn and mature to optimize his skills as a quarterback. So that's, that's how this came about. The, the process we were using to assess people in the cyber wasn't, at least in my mind, ideal. So I, I wanted to find a better way. Um, when, we, when we think about how the military from the cyber side uh, you know, uh, recruits and assesses people, they, the, they look, use an ASVAB, if your, your audience is familiar with the ASVAB, and that's it's not a good or, or a bad thing. It's just it is one of the metrics. But for cyber specifically, that's not the best way to how we can assess cyber people because it, ASVAB doesn't, does not reflect the technical nature of most jobs today because a lot of jobs today require interfacing with a computer or tablet. And that's not, it's not something that correlates well to the ASVAB. And so using sidecars, and I mentioned earlier, we used EEGs and biophysical sensors, we, you know, using the modern approaches that are grounded in neuroscience and analytics, we, we can unveil those kind of underlying cognitive processes uh, that are largely inaccessible by self-reporting on an assessment. So actually in it, one of the assessments we use, this thing called PK, it actually sh- strongly correlates real life focus and strategic decision-making and counterintelligence 
with how the brain engages those circuits to control those kind of psychological processes. So um, I'm sorry, that was a lot. Maybe we'll tease out some of that, but that is how uh, sidecars came about and why I saw a need for it. A good explanation. And I definitely love the analogies, whether it's race car, you're right. We all can drive or hopefully, but some of us are, are have something about us. That's a little different. And, and the Tom Brady one is one I've, I've heard many times. Were you finding that the rate of success of the cyber people passing the cyber course was low? Was it 10%? Was it 20%? Or was it 90%? But still, that's a 10%. One in one in 10 people weren't making it. And that's it's hard to, to have that. You really got to be 99%. What were you finding for the previous way you're doing it? I, so I can't talk to numbers because those are sensitive. But I will tell you that the attrition rate to get through again, so this is a the cyber people go through their service cyber schooling and they go off to other schooling on top of that. So it's the, that's the other schooling on top of that, that this specifically got after, but this, the additional training had a much greater than 50% attrition rate. So again, if for every, every two people I put in, only one person pops out, that's a lot of, that's still a lot of tax dollars we get for the people we push through it. And so we have to get those people qualified and fully trained to put them on mission. But if I'm losing one for every two I put in, I'm not, I'm not making headway. So the goal is how do I find the people that are more likely to pass? So the question you asked about, you know, uh, finding it and how, how it's being done differently. Again, the assessments that were being used, they were good for at the time, they, they're good up into that, you know, even we still use a lot of those assessments today, but I wanted to figure out, well, how do I help, help those people that are, we're putting into it be more successful getting through it. And so sidecars as a technology, it helps identify the, the, how the contract traits that people that have passed this, this specific training, how they think and how they act in, the, in a sense, and how they think and how they act. If I can find people that have that similar aptitude that can think along those lines of methodical think, attention, detail, perseverance, uh, decision, ambiguity, those five, you know, kind of big five traits if I can find people that think in that kind of manner, not related to groupthink, just think using kind of similar processes. Those are the people that are that typically pass this course. I got to find people that think like that. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Wompat is a member of the Air National Guard Cyber Operations Group. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ask the CIO. But first, lawmakers are once again proposing changes to telework and remote work for federal employees. The newly introduced Telework Reform Act would set some new reporting requirements on the government's workplace arrangements. The bipartisan legislation is somewhat of a deviation from the goals of the Show Up Act from earlier this year. Here with the details is Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eric. So there's a lot in the Telework Reform Act, but uh, let's start with some of the basics. What would the impacts be for federal employees specifically? So what this bill would do generally is codify or put into law the definitions that OPM has currently for what telework and remote work mean for federal employees. And what that means in practice is that federal employees would have to report to the office at least twice per two-week pay period. Now, that's because the working definition of telework, as the Office of Personnel Management puts it, is that employees are expected to report to work at an agency work site on a regular and recurring basis each pay period. So by setting that into law, these lawmakers are trying to make things a little bit supposedly more consistent for federal employees 
and just put that into legal terms rather than just a current definition. And one other thing that this would do for federal employees, notably the Telework Reform Act, would require agencies and employees to renew their telework and remote work agreements every single year. So the idea would be, you know, you assess performance, assess how things are going and make the decision from there of whether telework should be renewed for that given employee for another year. So setting some of these requirements, this is, you know, going to if it was enacted, it would change things pretty significantly for federal employees. All right. And so what about the agencies themselves? What would be the requirements for them under the Telework Reform Act? There's definitely a lot of stuff in here, Eric, for what agencies would have to do specifically when it comes to telework and remote work. The bill has a bit of a focus on data and reporting. So agencies, for example, would have to report to Congress on different aspects of telework and remote work, its potential value, any expected cost savings, productivity outcomes, if there was an increase in remote work and telework. Now, this follows after a lot of that we've seen in Congress uh, questioning about data of telework and remote work of federal employees. So the, the idea here is to just have that be a little bit more, again, consistent across agencies of what they're providing to Congress about how that would look. In addition to the report, that report to Congress, agencies would also have be required under the Telework Reform Act to identify different job classifications that would benefit from remote work opportunities. So this is looking at, you know, maybe trying to diversify what types of jobs make sense for telework and remote work. Of course, many federal employees do have to report in person just because that's what makes sense with their position. But this would make agencies require or require agencies to look at, you know, what would make sense for having remote work opportunities elsewhere. And that would, in a sense, the lawmakers are hoping also diversify the candidates that are coming into those positions. For example, geographically, you can have more people work from, you know, anywhere you want if if you have a remote work job. Interesting. And so what requirements on telework data were already out there? What did agencies have to provide Congress before this legislation and what did they do with it when they had it? Right. So there are already requirements on telework data and reporting that do exist. And again, the Telework Reform Act, this bill has just been introduced. So it's, you know, this is all just a proposal from lawmakers. It's it's from senators. It's from senators Lankford and Cinema. So if it was enacted, it would try to kind of scale up the amount of data and reporting requirements uh, that exist. But the ones that do already exist from the Office of Personnel Management they do a, an annual data call, as they call it, to all these agencies who have to report to OPM on how many teleworking and remote working employees there are and other information on their telework and remote work programs. OPM then compiles that information and provides it to Congress. And this happens every single year since uh, the, telework ref- the Telework Act of 2010 was passed. But in those years that OPM has been sending these reports to Congress, you've seen some lawmakers not satisfied with the level of the level or detail of the data that is coming from different agencies. So, for example, in OPM's report, they note that a few agencies aren't able to provide information either due to the classified nature of their work or because accurate records of teleworking and remote working employees aren't available 
So that's caught the attention of a lot of members of Congress, particularly House Republicans who have called on agencies to provide a lot more detailed and nuanced approach to to data collection on their telework and remote work programs. We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman about the Telework Reform Act. Now, the bill also focuses on recruitment of military spouses, something that should make it a little bit more popular. How would that aspect of the bill work if it was enacted? The one aspect of the bill that this does address is that under the Telework Reform Act, agencies would be able to appoint military spouses, spouses of law enforcement officers and veterans as well, to remote eligible federal jobs outside the competitive hiring process. So the idea is give agencies a little bit more flexibility and be able to bring in military spouses more easily to the federal workforce. This follows after, you know, there's a lot of efforts to bring more military spouses into the government. It's something that the Biden administration pushed on uh, agencies earlier this year to use a flexibility that already already actually exists for federal agencies There's a military spouse hiring authority that in the same idea lets agencies forgo the traditional hiring procedures that they have for most positions and more easily or more flexibly hire military spouses. There's been some concern that that authority is being a little bit underused. So this idea here with the bill would be to specifically focus on potential remote opportunities for military spouses. And the lawmakers who introduced the bill say that it's being made because military spouses and military families generally have to move around a lot. So the the idea of remote work is very appealing to military spouses who may not be in the same place for more than a couple of years at a time. Gotcha. Now, this issue has been kind of fermenting ever since we came out of the pandemic. Aside from this bill, what else has Congress been saying about federal employees teleworking? Well, Eric, the one thing that you did mention at the top that I can go into a little bit here is the Show Up Act. This is a bill that was introduced in the House in January and actually cleared the House at the end of the month uh, earlier this year. The idea there was the House lawmakers are uh, at least House Republicans are looking to return federal employees to pre-pandemic work arrangements and largely scale back the level of telework that we see currently for federal employees. Uh, Under that legislation, agencies would have the opportunity to expand telework, but only if they could prove or certify that it would have a positive effect on work performance. Now, the show up that show up act, it was also introduced in the Senate in May this year. And that bill is very different from this Telework Reform Act, which takes a little bit more middle of the road approach. The Telework Reform Act is also a bipartisan bill, whereas the Show Up Act is largely uh, only supported by Republicans. So that's where you see a little bit of the difference here in how Congress is trying to approach this. And the other thing that is notable to point out is that the House Oversight and Accountability Committee has been very laser focused on the idea of telework and remote work for federal employees. They've held a hearing just in September about uh, to question several agencies on their telework and remote work policy changes, how that's affecting productivity and everything of that nature. And they're looking to schedule another hearing in that in that area uh, coming up in the com- in the couple of weeks here. So there's you know still a lot of pressure, a lot of questions coming from Congress when it comes to telework and when it comes to the Telework Reform Act. This is, of course, one bill that was just introduced in the Senate. There's no House companion bill yet, but we'll just kind of have to see how things play out. 
All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. And you can find her story on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, X, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.